organizers, they talking abolishing the police and this is they talking abolishing the police and this is they talking abolishing the police and this is Hello. Hey everybody. This is Ergo. It is certain. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we've been doing here for a minute now is showcasing the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We are so excited to be bringing you the next episode in our abolition suite with uh, with a very special guest who we'll tell you about in a second. But first, Dave, you want to give them a little bit of info on what this suite is? So we are in this moment, depending on where you're listening, you might not recognize we are recording this in July of 2020. And this year we have seen world changing events, mainly an uprising, a black led uprising against police violence and against carceral institutions. And that's our jam. That's our bag. So we were, we were ready to hop right into there. Um, ready so to what, pod. So what we're intending to do uh, while this moment is exciting so many people's imagination, challenging so many people's conceptions of the world. Just create this as a little space for folks to be able to go learn and listen to some really amazing thinkers and movement builders uh, to help you contextualize and ground you in this moment and what it means to be in alignment with abolitionist tradition. So this series is happening in support of and in relation with the Defund CPD campaign here in Chicago, as well as the Black Abolitionist Network. On the first episode in the series from last week, we detailed the 11 demands of the campaign, uh, as well as talked about some ways that people can get involved. Dame, what's been happening with the crew? So yesterday, July 1st, we had an amazing rally, defund CPD campaign kickoff in Harold Washington Park in Hyde Park, not too far from the lakefront. Um, We had beautiful turnout, about 250 to 300 people were able to feed folks, performances by Rick Wilson, Tasha and Bella Boz. Um, and, and it's happening. So we're building up towards trainings that will be happening this weekend, July 3rd, 4th and 5th in North, South and West Side locations. Uh, and we're getting ready to build this container for, for thousands of people to participate and not only defunding the Chicago Police Department, but building a larger abolitionist movement. So obviously the campaign is pretty Chicago specific and and you'll hear some of the value in doing that hyper-local place-based work in our conversation today. Um, But there are people doing this work all over the country right now. And if you check the show notes, we've included uh, just a few of the projects and experiments that people are doing uh, in other parts of this landmass that were mentioned by our illustrious fantastic, very (laughs) special guest. So if you clicked on this, I'm sure you know what you're coming for. And we have been building up that suspense very intentionally. (laughs) (laughs) We got you. Uh, (laughs) And so here we are with the one, the only, you know, I am asked to speak about abolition all the time. And whenever I do, I make sure that I reference and tell people to go look up every word ever printed or spoken by the one and only Miriam Kaba. Miriam Kaba is a abolitionist thinker, organizer, writer, curator, community builder. This is the third time we've had her on the show. Uh, and uh, like I said before we started recording, it's a little bit like when Eddie Murphy would come on Arsenio. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, she's doing a favor. Every, it's everyone's favorite episodes. <laughs> you know, People it's know really... about us because of her. <laughs> and so, you know, shout out to, shout out to the GOAT for coming through. Um, but really just a wonderful conversation uh, with Miriam Kaba, who you can find on Twitter at Prison Culture if she lets you in. She now has a locked account. Um, and we're at Ergo Radio. You can also like, comment, subscribe to the pod. Make sure you leave us a review. 
And just to point you to some other places to go after this conversation, uh, one, everyone should read the, the very succinct uh, and very powerful op-ed Miriam wrote in the New York Times a few weeks ago. And the title is, Yes, We Literally Mean Abolish the Police. So go check that out. Um, she was also part of creating a, a resource tool and, and activating workbook uh, called Fumbling Through Repair for people who want to take these large concepts of abolition and start to practice them in community and grounded space. Uh, and so really, really go look into that work. And also go back and check the first two conversations we had with Miriam Kaba. Uh, we, we're really proud of the first time we spoke to her. For many people, that was one of their first resources to engage abolitionist thinking. And that episode was able to travel more than probably any other episode we've done, including being broadcasted in locked facilities uh, across the world. So we're really proud to be in legacy and to be continuing the tradition that Miriam stands for. Uh, and with no further ado, let's get to it. Here we go. I am ecstatic. You are glowing, dude. I am. I am ready to pod. This is <laughs> this is a day. We are doing it. If if you know us, you know that this is this is what we're here for. <laughs> we're so so excited to be recording this episode as part of our abolition suite. With I think we can say like when people say like friend of the show, like deeply you are friend of the show. <laughs> um, in addition to all of the other things, uh, the brilliant um, and. I feel like my intros were better before because I didn't know the ways that you impacted me were less impactful then. Now it's like so ingrained that it's hard to even like name the the intro. But so excited to be in conversation today with Miriam Kaba. Hello, everybody. Welcome to me, to the ergo podcast what do i what did i say i was on a i was on a recent podcast which is delete your account and i was like thank you for having me um to my second favorite podcast oh. <laughs> well, shout wow. out. and people were like um what <laughs> just like yes yeah, so i'll use the same thank you to, for having me to my second favorite podcast so everybody will be my second favorite okay. no one will know that's perfect no one will know what my first favorite is we'll have to start a coalition of mary's <laughs> exactly. second favorite podcast and maybe together well, I, we can I become listen to so many because i'm an insomniac so it works out yeah maybe your first favorite is like wildly problematic <laughs> <laughs> we just like love Joe Button's podcast so deeply. <laughs> uh, Miriam, first of all, thank you so much for being here. I think we can just start where we always start, which is in this time, this moment, this season. How is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? How is the world treating me and how am I treating the world? And I think I'm treating the world um, in the best way that I can do in this moment, which is to be open to what's out there and to be uh, trying to set boundaries um, in very specific ways as to what it is that the world can ask of me. And I think um, how the world is treating me is actually pretty good. Um, I am really, really blessed to, you know, have a terrific family, to be in community with wonderful people, and um, to also, you know, be in a space where folks are interested in the ideas that I have and are asking questions. So I think the world is treating me pretty well. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful to, to hear your voice and be in conversation with you. Um, and to that, I'm also 
trying to add this new tradition to our two-part question uh, for folks that there is a little bit more relationship or trust with. Uh, and I heard you talk about boundaries, so maybe that might pull, pull out the answer to this question. In addition to how you're treating the world and how the world is treating you, how are you treating yourself in this really momentous, high-paced time? And, I, and you know, what does some of that boundary setting look like in terms of like maintaining your health? I think we learn a lot of lessons from your boundaries. Yes. Um, I have been really focused right now on narrowing in on the things that I think are important and letting go of the rest. And so, um, you know, I've said no to a lot of requests that people have of me, whether it's press or, you know, do this or do that. I've been really enforcing strict boundaries around what I'll say yes to. Um, I've been accepting things that maybe I wouldn't have accepted 10 years ago in terms mm. of opportunities that arise. Um, trying to move myself a little bit out of my regular comfort zone on certain things. Um, and so just, you know, I, I really feel like over the years I've learned myself better and that helps you to figure out what your actual boundaries are. And also boundaries are usually a negotiation um, between what you want and what other people want. It's not like a firm set thing. Um, and so you have to get really good at being able to negotiate. And the only way to do that is to know who you are. That's really interesting what you just said about negotiation. So, you know, one of the things that we borrow from a friend here, uh, Ricardo Gamboa, a lot is the distinction between like radical purity and uh, radical insistence. And I'm just thinking about that in in that context of, of choosing where to like draw the boundary and that also some of the boundary is letting things in that you wouldn't have let in before um, because there's a space there that didn't maybe exist for, for you to do that work before. Obviously, right now in this moment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> over the last month, there are all kinds of new negotiations and boundaries being knocked down and redrawn. And just there, there's a lot of things that were just how things are that are mm -hmm. no longer like that for better mm -hmm. or for worse or just for reality. What is something that uh, you've seen in the last month or experienced that you didn't think you would ever see? I mean, I guess if I'm a hundred percent honest, I don't think there's anything that's happened that I didn't think I would see. Maybe I can think about the question a little differently for myself, which is that I honestly believe that we're going to win the things we fight for. What I'm so encouraged by is the fight. So not that I didn't think I would see it, I never can predict. I'm not Nostradamus. I don't know, you know, I don't know when protests are going to happen. I don't know when <laughs> rebellions are going to happen. I don't, you know, I don't think anybody does, really. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that doesn't stop people from asking you when the protest is happening, though. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know when those things are going to happen. I, uh, I let go of those certainties years yeah. ago. Um, but what my conviction is, is that we ought to be organizing steadily, always, all the time. And so when the protests and the uprisings happen, we can meet those moments because we've actually been building all along. Did I think I would see people burning down a police precinct? Maybe I didn't think about it, but it's not surprising to me. 
Mm. You know, given where we are and given the fact that that particular station was like a horror center for people and years and years and years of folks on the ground over there saying things are terrible at that third precinct. Um, You know, it makes sense that people would be like, burn that thing down. Um, So it's completely rational and logical to me that that would be the case. So I think that's how I would answer that particular question. Yeah. Yeah. What, What I hear from that is like, we couldn't expect any of this, but it's very easy to accept it, right? Like that, like there, there is no preparing for the organic uprising of people. There's no equation for that. Uh, but at some point, that math is going to have to pay off if you keep doing certain things to people, I, I right? I think so. And also, those things aren't independent of continued organizing. Exactly. These things are dialectical. They influence each other. Spontaneity is real and happens, right? Because people take, you know, opportunities arise, situations arise, um, sparks happen. Those things are all true. And the thing that can make those moments, moments of real lasting and, and important change is the ongoing organizing that's been happening all along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. with the organizing that's been going on all along, right, that's something I've been really proud of to be able to name for folks is that, you know, most people's understanding of information is filtered through the news. And yeah. so for most people, they are unaware that this movement has been building for decades and has been in this like really consistent push and momentum building over the last six years. Uh, and so there's just this explosion. And then there's all of these questions that are being asked because now the possibilities feel more real because the news is talking about it, right? Like if the news says <laughs> defund the police and now there's a debate about it, now people are engaging it and like using their imaginations in ways they were never challenged to before. Uh, mm-hmm. And so with that, right, like I'd used kind of, <laughs> in, in retrospect, it, some of it was kind of a defense mechanism when people would be in conversation with me before this, uh, uh, trying to understand abolition of it is a generational fight. Uh, mm-hmm. And with that, what I'm saying is like, I don't have the answers right now. It's not my job to have the answers right now. It's actually the work of the children that we're trying to make sure have, a, you know, a, a place to sleep and like a school that can help them with their creativity to create our new like generational future. Uh, but now people, you know, M- M- Minneapolis use the word disband and have voted to disband their police department in Chicago. We are uplifting this fight. So now the questions are much more tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in addition to this large excitement that I think we'll talk about much more throughout this conversation, uh, there also is kind of this feeling of like being naked or being exposed because we mm-hmm. did not expect 2020 to be the year of uprising and the year where abolition was being talked about on CNN or wherever it is else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so now people, you know, people who think, not abstractly or people who think in concrete terms want to know, well, then what do I do tomorrow if you're talking about doing this tomorrow now? Uh, And so do you feel any of that exposure, any of that nakedness of like, there are so many things that need to be built with practice, so many things that are going to take lessons and are not going to be immediate, but people now want immediate solutions that we were not six months ago tasked to have? Yeah, that's a terrific question, honestly. Thank you. Um, (laughs) It is a really good question. And I want to say that... um, one of the things that I've learned over the years or that I've cared about most over the years in terms of myself as a PIC abolitionist, I've always really been interested in what we're building. Like that's been a big part of why I do the kinds of things I do and why I've built the kinds of containers I've built over the years, because it's always interesting to me to think about 
the how of things, the strategy of how we get from where we are to where we want to go. So I don't feel extra pressure about like, give me an answer right now. Like, but I feel a responsibility to have more people make more things. Mm. I've been talking to folks over the last month or so about the importance of us building a million different little experiments, (laughs) you know, like just building them and trying and taking risks and understanding we're going to have tons of failure and really understanding that failure is actually the norm and a good way for us to learn lessons. And part of the design. Part of it. And, you know, the friggin' tech folks talk about that all the time about, you know, the people who are, quote unquote, running the banks talk about failure all the time. They normalize that. It's only on the other side of folks who are interested in social transformation and change where failure is supposed to be a not spoken about or a sign that you're horrible or that your ideas don't have merit. Right. So I just want us to be building a million different experiments. And that's what my kind of energies are, are, are focused on in this moment. But they've been focused on that. I also want to say something, which I, I read a tweet from somebody a couple of weeks ago who goes by Zen Marxist on uh, Twitter. And it was really something that had stuck with me because it's really just it feels right. And something I've kind of tried tried to talk about, but with many more words. Um, And they wrote something like, people want to treat, we'll figure it out by working to get there as some sort of rhetorical evasion, instead of being a fundamental expression of trust in the power of conscious collective effort. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so good, right? Like, we'll figure it out by working to get there. That's really what we're going to be doing anyway. And you don't have to know all the answers in order to be able to press for a vision. That's ridiculous. And I don't I hope people aren't feeling that kind of pressure, but I do hope people are feeling a sense of, yeah, I want to make a bunch of things. I want to try a bunch of things. I think we should do that. And maybe the resources will be there this time to actually make that work. Yeah, and I, I think so much of the the discomfort with that experimentation, the idea of like, we need a product to sub in for this other product is this yeah. very like capitalist mindset around it of like, this is not about process. We we hide the process, we hide the labor of it. And then what do we like present to the public as our final thing? And, and you know, it's, there's almost a, yeah, the logic of that is in some ways dehumanizing. It's like, mm-hmm you should have already had your, you know, your factory model built for this. It's like, no, we're saying like, stop building factory models <laughs> where we know what the pride that we know what the widget is. Like liberation isn't a widget exactly. that you can like design the pathway towards. Exactly. And also what is a huge part of abolition? PIC abolition is creativity. And it's also about the fact that we actually are saying that part of the problem with policing prisons and surveillance is that it's a one size fits all model that if the, you know, that that's the hammer and then everything are nails. And, you know, Angela Davis says this perfectly about the, the importance of there is no one alternative. There are a million alternatives. And the issue is to figure out which alternative works for what situation. I don't like to use the term alternative, but I will in this case, right? <laughs> um, it's like, the, you know, what works for this particular situation that we're in? What works for these people? How are we going to actually address this based on like human needs? 
Like these are the things that we're interested in as PAC abolitionists. I think that makes us actually, uh, you know, again, incredibly creative, always generative, and also not afraid, again, of failure. So let's stay in that place of this uh, courageous, creative, like space of generative experimentation, right? Because, you know, you now in these last however many years have come into this space and you get revered and you also just get like limited to like the sound bite of making this really horrible system obviously horrible to people, right? And I, I know that that is, <laughs> <laughs> and that is not all that you are. Um, and the things that I hear you most passionate about, um, I don't think people like see you as that appropriately, right? So I hear you name yourself as like a curator and someone who puts together exhibition and like a librarian of like liberatory artifact and knowledge creation in ways that are not being appreciated, right? Does that sound accurate to like? I don't really care that they're appreciated or not by other <laughs> okay. people. Cool. Right, but, exactly. That's yeah, <laughs> but I care about them for myself. Right. They're yeah. a huge part of who I am. And they're a huge part of how I make sense of the world. And so yeah. I, I want I, I want to borrow that or tap into that eye, that curatorial eye, because uh, I imagine you have a perspective and are able to see things that at least personally, I'll say I'm not you know, seeing all. Um, and so there's these a million experiments that are needed and there's thousands of them that are happening. And it feels like people are taking the steps also to try a, a whole new load of experiments right now in this time. Are there a few that are in the shadows that excite you or that's have challenged you or that surprised you or that like you've really fallen in love with and want to like display on the wall of as like a, a, a something that touches your heart as a beautiful human experiment for new solutions? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question mainly because I don't want to put people on those model trains. Mm-hmm, and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, um, you know, part of what's been the pressure that people have been putting on is like, what's the organization we ought to model ourselves after? Mm-hmm. And those organizations and groups and, and many of them are just formations and collectives are in no way interested, first of all, in being the model. Like they're always clear on like, we're not the model. We're just trying to figure stuff out in our communities for each other. But also the pressure of that, then it's like, evaluate yourself. Show us the best practice. What is your effectiveness, right? The language of uh, neoliberal efficiency models. Yeah, yeah, that sounded just like a project report. Yeah, Exactly. And it just Mm -hmm. destroys whatever creativity and options people had. Most of them aren't even funded groups, right? They're, They're tiny collectives. And, you know, I mean, I'll speak to, I love what Mia Mingus has been doing for years at the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, where they're working on creating community-based solutions to addressing childhood sexual assault and violence. And they know that ends up being a fulcrum for people who want to use abolition and kind of, uh, you know, um, discredit it because they're like, well, how are we going to do about the child rapist? You know, like that, that is the, the point at which that gets brought up is the point at which people are hoping to stop the project you know, and so they're they're very like intentionally stepping into that, um, and and really doing some powerful work in their communities to build resiliency and safety for children and their families. And I really love what they're doing and have been doing for a long, long time. Um, you know, I love the models that people are trying out and just testing out right now. The um, how do you call it? The uh, anti-terror police project out in Oakland has just launched a a community-based mental health response project, which 
they're going to be directly responding to issues that arise in their communities. I love what the folks in um, LA are trying to do with the CAT 911, Community Action Team 911 project, which is to seed different individual projects at the local, very hyper-local level to engage people in what are alternatives to calling 911, right? All these particular things that are of interest to me or that, you know, kind of get my attention, really focus on the hyper-local. They really are about, again, really trying to meet the needs of their communities in specific ways. And um, most of them are completely unfunded or underfunded. That's a problem, right? Because they should be getting a heap of resources in order to be doing their work and taking it to the next level if they want to do that. So yeah, so those are just a few examples. But then I also look at things that are less kind of hyper community level respond to harm things that are very much kind of of interest to me. And I, you know, I think about a lot of uh, projects that people are doing using art um, and trying to create new languages um, to help people understand the moment we're in and what they can do to help support struggle and take action. I'm always just, you know, paying attention to what people are trying um, and and not trying to be like, you're the model, but just being like, what are you doing? I'm so interested in what you're trying to do. Yeah. Can we talk about money for a second? Just sure. as you mentioned, the unfunded and underfunded piece. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not necessarily something I expect you to have an answer on. But so much of the conversation, and for good reason, in the last month has been around distribution and redistribution of one, public funds in terms of defunding as the framing, which is amazing, but also just on the like personal and interpersonal level, mm-hmm. so much of it is like you have more than you should. This person has less than they need. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we're, we've just seen like immense quantities of money be moved around between companies and people and organizations in a, at a pace that like is impossible to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Um, in one like particular microcosm of the some of the complications that emerge from that is some of the conversation that happened with the Minneapolis Freedom Fund a couple of weeks ago um where all of a sudden there was this call for accountability of where their where the money that went to them has gone um without an understanding of the challenges of scaling up and building up an organization we don't have to talk about them specifically mm-hmm. but you know as someone who has been doing this work for a really long time uh for for people who don't have the understanding of what does it mean to like build a new project or have new money come in or, or, or shift your focus. Um, are, are there any kind of reminders or messages for the people who are like, we want to make sure that this goes well, which is a great intention, but there, there might be some realities that the people need to know about in that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great question. And those things are real. They're happening on the ground every day. I want to take a, a step back to just talk about what our expectations are. Mm. What are our expectations of organizations and groups that are in our ecosystem? What do we think they're supposed to be doing? (laughs) Yeah. For whom are they supposed to be doing that? And whose responsibility is it to fund that stuff? I just would like to ask folks to think about that. If the point is that no organizations should exist at all, because all organization is bad or prone to actually, uh, you know, steal money from us, exploit us, treat us like crap, then how are we going to organize ourselves in the world? How are we going to organize ourselves to do anything? 
I think there's a lot of a lack of trust that for good reason has yeah. been thrown at institutions, institutions where harm may have occurred in the past and wasn't actually dealt with, institutions where they said they were going to do something and they did not do that. But I think I want to go back to the point that I always make, which is a lot of people scream about accountability constantly. And this is particularly the truth. This happens in um, particularly in a social media kind of frenzied way, which is like, we want accountability. It's like, first of all, what relationships do you have with those particular entities where accountability could be had? Right. Like, what's the claim being made here? My $2 that I gave you gives me the right to be able to just start yelling at you for no reason. Or to audit your books. (laughs) Or to audit your books or to expect things from you. Or my $0 that I've not even bothered to give you gives me the right, right? Like, and this is happening a lot because a lot of these people did not actually do anything where they didn't actually give any money to those bail funds. But yet they they were kind of quick to be like, yeah, see, we told you. And I have to say that I understand why that is. Like I mentioned, I understand why that is. It makes sense on a human level. And yet we still have to have organizations and groups working to be able to do the things that we need to have done. We can't do them all just as individuals. So I just will go back to the three questions I ask people to be thinking about before they start going down certain roads. I want everybody to be transparent. Okay, I think it's a good thing. And most of these groups, if they're 501c3s, are going to be transparent because you're going to see their 990s. If you want to go back and read who's funding them, if you want to go, you know what I mean? Like, you'll be able to do that research if you want. That's possible. You can do that. It's less possible if groups are kind of doing their work with outside of the state in that way. It's harder to do that. But we can impose a standard where we say everybody who gets money at the end of the year should divulge, you know, if you're doing good practices, you should divulge how you got those funds and what you did with them. We can do that. We should ask for that. That's right, especially if we're in community with these spaces that are supposed to be serving our communities. That's absolutely right to do. But I just think a lot of what happened in this particular frenzy was also very weirdly um, anti-Black because it was like these, some of these groups, and I'm not talking about the Minnesota Fund, but some of these other groups, it's like, we don't trust you with money. Mm. But no one is running at the same level over at other groups that have existed for ages who have been completely non-transparent, but run by white people. They haven't had the same kind of, you know, kind of um, bandwagon effect that something was wrong. They're doing something malevolent with these funds. A part of it, I think we have to be honest, is not trusting the leadership of some people of color and black people in particular. And, and stuff like this is part of the reason why, like, I protect myself from Twitter feeds. Um, but even hearing it, right, like, it's only been a month. So, Thank you. <laughs> so At like, the time, it was two weeks. Yeah, right? right. So there's not even been enough time for malpractice to even occur, <laughs> right? So like, <laughs> yeah, embezzling takes time. <laughs> and, and so it does speak to this deeper like distrust. I, you know, I always try to like. I, 
be somewhat like proactively accountable of like, you know, we as an ecosystem can do a lot of work to figure out how we separate or at least differentiate ourselves from the traditional nonprofit structure yes. that does deserve a lot of scrutiny and does deserve a lot of mistrust, right? Like yes. the the proverbial like Red Cross showing up after Thank tragedy you. makes a lot of sense. So what you're mm-hmm. saying of like you empathize with the impulse mm-hmm. um, is really real. So that's something I think we can learn from this time of like, yes, these like public notions of transparency that we model. Um, one, because it also then shames the institutions that have, like you're saying, 10 to a thousand times more funds than we do into like, you know, being the model of what a new entity of this central question you asked of how do we want to organize ourselves? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is what I've been trying to say is what abolition is. It is about how do we organize human relationships? And that is the opportunity that we have before us. Um, and so like to bring like the big to like this small context, that is always the question. Um, and, and it feels like people have not been afforded the space to know how to ask themselves that. And then they <laughs> respond out of a frustration from not being able to like access that really important central question or feel that they don't have any impact on the answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I do think that, um, again, as I mentioned from the top, it, like it's good reason for people's suspicions and mistrust. Like I totally get it. Makes sense to me. And we also have to have enough kind of of an of a ability to pull ourselves away from our initial kind of visceral reaction to be like okay well what are the facts on the ground here do i know enough information i have to say though damon that i don't see us shaming any of these big organizations doing <laughs> yeah, anything right. you know what i mean i think those organizations have to they're going to have to go down like i yeah, just think yeah. you know they're like they're, right, they're yeah, not that was naive one, yeah those are not ones we're going to negotiate with we have yeah, to like they right. have to be dismantled right and yes, new things yes. have to come in their place um but i i do think about that a lot and i also am noticing this is related you know this moment is bringing up a lot of traumas that people have about a lot of things and some of it mm. is we're seeing a lot of um folks who are victims and survivors of sexual violence and other forms of violence feel in this moment when we're talking about abolition very much triggered in various kinds of ways. Also, some folks who are just kind of like, you know, these ideas and these ideals aren't strong enough to hold me. You know what I mean? Like they're not, I didn't feel validated in these kinds of settings. Mm, And so mm -hmm. people are like, a lot is churning in this moment. And I do want to say something about the importance that those of us as PAC abolitionists aren't required to solve all the world's problems, but I think we are absolutely required to make sure that we are trying to live up at least to our values Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. those values are super clear to all of us and that we consistently try to live up to them. And when we don't, because we inevitably won't, that we really, really take accountability ourselves and not wait for other people to quote unquote, hold space for us to take accountability. That we just are really clear on when we've messed up, when we've caused harm and model that for other people on a regular basis. And I think I think this moment allows for that as a possibility outside of the people feeling traumatized and projecting and doing all that kind of stuff. That's gonna happen. And those folks have to hold their trauma it's real. They have to process it. They have to deal with it. 
I think for me, the way that I don't, I don't see that as like people coming directly at me, even if they do, I see it as an opportunity for us to build um, accountable communities overall. Yeah. I love what you said. And again, it comes back to transparency. And what you find is once you name and acknowledge the times that you don't live up to your ideals, it's not as scary of a thing the next time, right? Because you see that your world wasn't, you know, stolen away from you and you weren't in that. If you're in community, actual community with people, you aren't treated punitively necessarily. Obviously, it depends on what happens. But the acknowledgement and the transparency is such an important piece. And it's so scary because we've been taught to shirk accountability Absolutely. in favor of individualism. And that's like, that's the personal shift that uh, there's a lot of opening up that comes once you say, you know what, I can name the things I did yeah. and try to try to heal them. And it doesn't mean that everything collapses around me necessarily. And it also doesn't mean that the people who were harmed have to have been like, yay, great. You've taken accountability. <laughs> exactly. Like That's yeah. super important because I think there's this thing, like I go on two fronts around this, which is we don't have a culture where you really should be taking accountability given the fact that we have these other Damocles swords hanging over your head as to what might happen to you if you do. That's one thing. I get it. We don't have a culture that supports that. And yet we have to be intentional and and courageous enough if we're trying to build something else to still do that, to still take accountability every time we can. You know, there's a song by Sinead O'Connor that talks about um, take back what doesn't belong to me. And I use it all the time, like as that point, which is like, there are things that belong to me and I've got to really sit with those things and and work those things out and then take back the stuff that doesn't belong to me. There's a lot that people project onto you that really is not about you and is about them and the Mm -hmm. discernment of figuring out when those things are the, is that's the whole thing. That's the whole key, right? In this conversation around accountability, there's something that I've seen you tweet um, that I think has been really helpful for me Mm -hmm. and I imagine for other people as well. Again, projection. Um, But (laughs) this idea of holding someone accountable and that language and that framing being something that is a fallacy. Um, So I'm wondering, I'm just going to put a quarter in the in the jukebox. But can, can you explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. I want people to understand very specifically that none of us can actually, quote, hold anybody accountable or make them accountable. Accountability is an internal resource that each of us has to figure out and understand what we think is right and wrong. And that is not something that some outside force can kind of impose on you. You have to work that out for yourself. So every time I hear people saying things like, we have to hold blah, blah, blah accountable, what they usually mean is we want some form of punishment. They're trying to exert and compel somebody to do something that they really want done, right? And as we know, that just doesn't work very well, right? Punishment in general doesn't work very well. And frankly, taking accountability is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It means that you have to put yourself at risk of what else might come. It means that you have to do work. You have to actually attend to the harm. You have to pay attention to it. You have to name it. You have to actually think about repair. And most of us just don't want to do it. Okay, because it's so much easier to pretend like everything's cool. I harmed somebody. Oh, didn't happen. Let me keep it moving. I don't want to engage. 
right? And so I always want people to really understand that, you know, you're not actually going to be holding anybody accountable. You can create the space within your communities for people to be more likely to take accountability themselves. (laughs) I love that. That's the best we can really be doing. And so Mm -hmm. my thing is like, what are all the things we can be doing in our communities that make that possible, that make it possible and likely that folks are going to be more willing and more interested in taking accountability, right? I'm not going to be able to shift other people's behavior, but I can be self-accountable. Absolutely. Right. And there's the great work of the Northwest Network, Shannon Perez Darby and others who have taught us over the years about kind of the self-accountability scale, you know, that really what we want to be at for our self-accountability is six. And where we're usually at, is zero or a (laughs) hundred. Oh, that's amazing. A little bit more than neutral. Right? (laughs) Where we want to be at, we're either at zero taking accountability or a hundred, which is usually, I'm such a horrible person. Right. I'm just the worst. Everybody hates me. Blah, blah, blah. So what do you do when you're at a hundred? That means that you're basically also not taking accountability. You're forcing everybody to come and make you feel better. Right? right? That's also not accountable. So I'd like people to really try to practice that. It's practice. We just have to keep doing it. We have to keep trying to learn how to do better apologies. We have to build up the skills that we need to be able to say, I'm really sorry I did that to you. I don't want to do that again. Here's what I'd like to try to do. Is this good for you? Right? And if the person says, no, it's not good for me, even after you've tried, sometimes you got to let it go and keep it moving. You've got to still work on yourself without necessarily hoping for the person who you harmed to be all okay with you and forgive you. I, I love I love this like personal transformative piece of it because so much of what the conversation is right now is about what institutions do we build. And we know the micro macro work hand in hand and, and that this conversation is about like like you said, how do we want to organize each other and ourselves? That kind of like comfort and familiarity means that then it's a lot easier to build the containers where people can bring themselves at. And there are structural spaces and incentives for them to do that. Because like you said earlier, and I'd never quite thought about it. Like there is very little incentive <laughs> to take accountability for your actions because the the consequences are almost always punitive and at worst carceral. Yes. Yes. Even if the carceral doesn't actually end up impacting you, there's right. still the threat of it. Which is an impact, right? Yeah, a it is its own impact. impact. Absolutely yeah. right. Absolutely right. Jumping off of that, I, if, if you can't tell, I've been reading your tweets as usual, but uh, th- there's one other framing that I think has been really helpful for me in this time that I think could be helpful for others also. And it leads right out of that point is that we're not just talking about abolishing departments. We're talking about abolishing ideologies and this idea of it's abolishing policing and that that process can occur you know, in all kinds of institutions. It can also occur interpersonally and communally. Yes. Where, what pieces of that framing do you want to make sure are kind of added into the, into the conversation right now? Yeah, I think about that a lot um, because police are only just a small part, a hugely important part, but it's just a small part of the larger issue of policing and surveillance that we have to address and also abolish. And I say this all the time, quoting my friend Paula Rojas about um, her piece she wrote years ago about are the cops in our heads and hearts. 
And one story she tells there is that they're doing protests. You know, Paula was one of the founders of a thing called Sister to Sister in Brooklyn um, years, ago, years ago. And they were running these projects and programs and, you know, there would be protests happening and people would run to the cops to get a permit so they can protest. And one of her uh, comrades in Chile was like, y'all are asking the police for permits to protest the police, (laughs) right? Like what is this really about here? Right. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, the cops are in our heads and hearts. This is just in one small example of it, Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely the case. And we can often reenact cop behavior amongst each other. And we're seeing that in some of the protests that have occurred, you know, people calling people out and, turning them over to the wolves, literally, which are the cops, you know? Um, And so this is happening. There's the question of soft policing, which I don't think is actually soft. It's really rough and hard. Um, But the soft policing of um, people who have to, uh, you know, are coming out of prison, they're going through reentry. And one of the things they have to do is pee in a cup. Social worker gets, they come up dirty with that particular test, and then they're revoked back into the carceral state. This is a form of policing in the form of probation and parole. Um, We understand other forms of, quote, soft policing, which involve um, child welfare protection, quote unquote, system, um, which is just the law enforcement agency. Right. People think about it as services. But folks from the Movement for Family Power, for example, just put out a new report that helps us to really understand that actually pulling your child away from you is one of the most horrific forms of violence that can be done to a human being. You know what I mean? And that we don't- To like any that. mammal. Anybody. <laughs> yeah. your children Shit, away a fish. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we don't see that as deep policing, right? And so all of those things are super important for us to be keeping in mind and to be fighting as well, alongside. We have to be fighting all these things together. We have to be mentioning them all together. I'm doing a talk, uh, moderating a talk between um, Vicky Law and um, Maya Shenwar, who have a new book out called uh, Prison by Another Name that is coming out soon. And their book is very much about exactly this, which are all the quote-unquote alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to policing that folks are throwing out there that just reproduce the police. Yeah. Or even if they're not reproducing the police, they're still feeding uh, prisons. Right. Yeah. So that was so much of what people's, you know, kind of liberal response as they understand defunding, even in support of it, is send a social worker, send yeah. DC, like, send, and without an understanding of the ways, like you said, that those institutions are still, you know, operating with the same logics and feeding the same structures. Yes. And um, part of the carceral state, absolutely. Even though yeah. we don't see them that way, but they absolutely are. So I think that we have to be really judicious. And if we're building the first question, one of the questions that Damon asked earlier on, which is like, what else, you know, what, what do we want to build? Those things have to really be part of it. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about, um, again, Liat Ben Moshe, who's also in Chicago, has a new book called uh, Decarcerating Disability. And mm. it's all about the way that everybody's now saying mental health. Like, what we need is a different force that's going to handle mental health. But, like, what are we really saying there? And what, what, what are we trying to handle? And what does that look like for the people who are going to be the targets of this, right? But that we have to be thinking about the root, radical, at the root of all of these kinds of systems and all of these kinds of ideologies and all these visions in order to be able to get to the world we want. 
So, yeah. so, so you know, it's it's really effective the language of the way the policing in our heart and mind. Um, and so, what's so exciting about prompting us to have this conversation right now is that in this time, more than I've ever known in my life or in my study of humanity, uh, liberation and like a subset of that liberation, abolition, is really emerging in people's hearts and minds. And so from that, I wanted to do a few things at once. I It wouldn't be to- Damon if it wasn't a few things. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I want to gas you up. Uh, we, we've... We've we've been really careful, uh, but but we have a lot of gas in this <laughs> story for you that I'm ready <laughs> that I'm ready to disperse. So I want to do that. Uh, I want to be <laughs> playfully accountable, uh, and then also I want to ask like a personal human question about this time, like beyond the external analysis. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Sure, that's fine. All right. So abolition is in the heart and minds of people, and the gas. Uh, you know, thank you so much for your work. You know, I think the relationship you have to the show is not just as someone who's been on it now three times uh, and someone who is a, a, a lovely tweeter and like social media advocate of our space. Uh, but if people listen diligently, uh, there are so many people who say like my life or my work, usually the way they shorthand is like, and then I met Miriam and then I started <laughs> to figure these things out. But what they're really saying is I entered a space that Miriam Kaba and her colleagues and, you know, this generation of organizers created that then allowed me to shift and transform myself and take new practices and like build bodies with new people. Um, and, and, you know, what that has done, not only for Chicago, what you have done, obviously, in, in your hometown in New York, but across this country. Uh, and you are not alone. But, you know, for me personally, and I know like the direct ecosystem of the people that I know when it was just a dozen of us in this city, <laughs> you know, like little teenagers and 20 somethings screaming at cops, getting beat up and, and you know, stressing out, yelling at each other. Uh, you know, we, we had to attribute you know, the work that you pr- you created towards helping us think this way. Uh, and now the world, you know, is saying these words, saying these ideas, even if 60% of them are getting it wrong when they're saying they're trying, <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to say these things that was gibberish or a foreign language, uh, you know, five years ago, six years ago. Uh, so one, just like a, 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 a personal gratitude. So here comes my playful accountability. Uh, so in the formal space, uh, whenever someone speaks to or ask me a question about any of this, right? One, I quote you often, uh, but what I say is like, you know, don't listen to me. I'm figuring it out. Uh, and here's what my answer will be. But before, go and look up any word that Miriam Kaba has said, written, or been a part of, as well as Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I, I associate y'all two as like the thinkers, the leaders, the organizers that has created this space. Um, and I know there's been, you know, hundreds of people. So I, oh, I, yeah. I know the discomfort you're hearing. Yeah. Uh, but even even I without recognize. the video, we could see. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, 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 but who I recognize and mm-hmm. who I point people to is you too. So here's my informal accountability. Here's where I say, um, not in public. I say, so Angela Davis, right, is like the Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, it's a basketball <laughs> analogy <laughs> of this thinking, right? Introducing <laughs> abolition democracy, pulling from Du Bois around reconstruction and uh, attaching that to the PIC. And then I say, Ruth is kind of like a Michael Jordan, like Magic Johnson type of thing, like really created the game, like made it global to get to this new level and then i give you like i don't know if this resonates i give you like this kobe lebron status and so like i'm talking to like well i'm talking to like jennifer's mom for example and she's like you know i was like yeah we got mary and we might get ruth they're like who's that i'm like okay just to make it simple there's angela davis and then there's ruth and then there's mary and so i say oh these things because they feel appropriate 
I'm being playful, but I yes. want to be accountable to you because I know yes. that makes you uncomfortable. Yes. Very much so. <laughs> uh, but lastly, to, to my more serious question coming out of that gas and accountability. <laughs> once this started happening, right? Once we saw what was happening in Minneapolis, once I started seeing defund not just be in hashtag and in our little, you know, social media internal bubble, once I saw it really taking popular ground, I had this excitement and this pride of like being a part of something. And like I was saying, it literally, it was only a few dozens of us in this city, at least. Um, and on May 31st, I saw tens of thousands of people and the majority of the signs, the messaging, the energy uh, was pushing towards abolition and pushing towards defund. And I felt so much pride and so much joy and so much confidence. And I felt so affirmed. And I've been doing this for six years. And like all of our it's not just me. I'm saying like an I, we thing. So when I talk yeah. to, to Paige or when I talk to Asha or I talk to, you know, all the folks that are coming together, there's this like, wow moment of right now. And in feeling that, I immediately just try to imagine like how on a human level outside of her brilliant and humble analysis, how must Miriam really feel right now? I'm imagining, you know, 20 or so years of saying this word, mm-hmm. saying these ideas, and you have to do it in shadows and had to do it in rooms and people didn't show up and, you know, groups spit apart, all the things and all the labor. Uh, and they and tried now, to put you on panels with cops. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all, all the things, you, you know, you, but now on a global scale, an uprising that has never been documented before in human history and the, all over the world, affirming black life, right? Like, and the thing that's coming out of this is this new discussion around defunding the police and abolition. Just like outside of the dialectics, right? Like, how did that feel as it really started to set in of like, there's something happening right now and I'm a part of making it? Wow. Oh, my goodness. First of all, thank you very much for um, uplifting the work. As you, I think, both know, I feel very much that, again, nothing that we do that's worthwhile is done alone. And mm-hmm. so I'm I'm just committed to the notion that everything is collective and collective yes. struggle and collective knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel very much like, yes, that, that makes me um, happy that that kind of work is being seen by more people. Um, I do want to say, and this is probably, you're, I, I don't know if you're going to either believe it or, <laughs> you know, whatever, like, or just be like, what is wrong with her or this kind of thing. But I just... I haven't felt like any sort of like, I'm so happy that I've been part of this long-term struggle uh, to get us to this point. I have been very aware and I'm always happy and excited when people take action, right? Like, I mean, that's just like across the board, no matter what is going on, I want people to act and particularly to act in the direction of social change and transformation of the places I want to go. So I'm so elated. And I think maybe you noticed that. It's like I'm always a cheerleader for people's actions and including younger people that I've met and known over the years. I'm like, this is why I uplift all of your work and meaning you, all of you, that I've had the opportunity over the many years to be in rooms with, to be in community with, to be in struggle with, is because I'm genuinely just so thrilled anytime people are literally taking actions based on, you know, a, a principle and a belief that where what does Ruth say, you know, where life is precious, life is precious, right? Like that, mm. that makes me very excited and happy. And I don't, put myself in there. I just never have. 
Why not? Um, I grew up and was raised by other organizers to recognize that the self, myself, was not important in the scheme of the larger work that has to happen in order for us to get free. And that while people may want to uplift me separately and put me in a different place, it's my job to always remind everybody of everything else and everybody else. And I'm maybe I'm saying this out loud for the, I'm going to say this publicly for like, I don't really talk about this, but like one of the main reasons I do not ever want to be on screen or in photos or in these kinds of, was because I always felt like putting me up there in my face was just counterproductive to movement for multiple kinds of reasons. This is the world that I was ingrained to become an organizer in. And it wasn't until I was in my, I would honestly say my mid-30s to my late 30s that I started to put my name on anything that I made. I, for years, never did that. And it was the other people who brought it to my attention, particularly a friend of mine who was like, huh, interesting. For somebody who's so concerned about history, you seem to write yourself out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And it was a mm-hmm. moment of accountability for myself, of self-accountability about like, what am I telling all these younger people to do and to be? And then I'm modeling things that may not be useful. It's also not transparent. Right. It's not transparent. And, you know, so, yeah, for good or bad, your ideas should be out there for other people to, you know, push back on, to, you know, add to, to whatever. But they need to know who made some of those things and made some of those ideas. So, so yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a good answer for you, Damon, but it is the no, that's answer. What I, it's, it's what I expected. I might challenge a little bit because that is an answer. And I, I, I thank you for it because that, again is like the model and example that we need. So I, I'm very grateful. Because for, everyone else for is doing approach. the opposite. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so hearing that, you, you know, the intentionality with how you move through space um, and, and uplifting the collective goal in literally how you, you embody it. Um, so I'm grateful that you answered in that way. What I, I'm pulling out is that it is our work, you know, not just like the, the we of Damon and Daniel, but the collective we to also memorialize and document and name and uplift that should become outside of you. Right. And so it's not that you're blocking it or per se yeah. or, or, or denouncing it, no. uh, but you are not doing the labor of censoring yourself, even though it is really historically important that you are centered because we need more young people or more unborn people, right? People who are not yet here to want to aspire to move through the world the way Mary Macaba does. So that's like the, <laughs> the balance that we have to find with you. Uh, like you got to allow us to do it. At least. <laughs> no, right. But exactly. I, but I, right? <laughs> oh God. But I will challenge on, so on, I, I hear you of not wanting to take in the step or take credit, which is what mm. I hear, but on that internal, the feeling, mm-hmm. right? Cause there were just times of, of goosebumps and so maybe not even like from a point of accomplishment, yeah. um, but just like any gratification of you saw the struggle. So even if you weren't there, just as a documentarian, mm-hmm. you saw where this philosophy was 20 years ago. Yeah. I'm grateful every friggin' day. <laughs> <laughs> like every, like, and that's like real. Like I have a practice of gratitude, you know, mm-hmm. I journal every day. And one of the things in my journals are, what am I grateful for today? 
I am consistently living in gratitude. And I also don't like to talk about this publicly because then people think I'm some sort of like self-help guru person, you know? And it's like, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's deeply part of my spiritual practice to be grateful for everything. Grateful for, not grateful for when bad things happen. I don't believe that. I don't think we're grateful when horrible things happen to us. But we can be grateful for the lessons we learned do you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I'm grateful. And also, like, again, super stoked. I'm working with young folks who are organizers in different parts of the country right now um, on various projects and various things and supporting them in various ways in this moment. I feel so grateful. Like, I'm just like, how amazing is this that they're working on these things, that they're trying to actualize these ideas and that they bother to ask me for my opinion. like I feel you know what I mean like that they care and they're like oh yeah we really want your help we want to know how to do this like amazing you know I'm turning 50 (laughs) this next year and I'm like that's amazing that folks who are in their early 20s either know what anything about me and to want to me to be in this space with them to think through ideas and to figure out strategy and to implement a vision I'm like so grateful and so joyful about that. But it's less about me than it is about a movement that I've been part of for a long time. I was talking to somebody about this the other day that one of the first people I ever heard talk about Invest Divest was a former political prisoner named Eddie Ellis who passed away several years ago. And Eddie was talking about this in a room full of folks in the early 2000s and was saying like, we need to divest from punishment and prisons and policing. And we need to invest in our communities. What is it going to take for that to happen? And would go to room after room after room that I was in with it and would constantly bring up invest divest. So when I hear folks from the Movement for Black Lives in 2014 coming up in 2015 saying invest divest, I smile because I know that that's Eddie Ellis. Mm -hmm. And they don't know him and never met him. Yeah. But he made it possible for us to think that thought, mm. having also learned it from somebody else before him. You know? Mm. Yeah. And you all maybe have never heard Eddie Ellis before. And somebody may then go and Google him now and learn more about who he was and what he did and who, what he builds, you know? But like, he's also part of this story. And he is someone that was clear all the time that like, it's not about me. If you all take this idea and you run with it, I'm going to be so happy from wherever I'm looking down. Hmm. And I really take that to heart. And I believe that. And I believe he believes it. I believe he's looking down on us right now and smiling every time somebody brings up Invest Divest and says it's M4BL. Because I don't think he has ego at all in that. He's just going to be like, good. These young folks <laughs> took that shit and ran. I'm so happy. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 impact and the where where the the ideas and the lineages show up that's the that's the whole thing <laughs> that's the whole thing and you know yeah. and the fact that i na- i named his name today means more people know that he had a part in it but, but he didn't have to say look at me i'm doing this yeah yeah wow i love yeah it's not don't be don't have your name known it's don't make everyone know your name yes <laughs> it's it's a much more like gracious and communal way of of having your like your presence in the world that makes 
That's very helpful. Yeah, community <laughs> matters, y'all. Like it does matter. A collectivity matters. That's to me, that's the whole thing. That's the whole damn thing. And if we can't get along with each other, and mm. we can't take responsibility for what the hell we do with each other, then what the hell are we doing? For me, that's the bottom line. So if, if anybody who's listening to this, who's a young person working in this moment, please be part of a community of folks who are building an accountable community with each other. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> yeah. And, and be very careful, particularly in these times of high intensity, because something that I had been saying, but I always like, am I full of shit? Uh, but I heard you kind of affirm in this conversation is it feels like the most opportune times, the, the, the times of the most political opportunity uh, also are the most triggering for our people. Yes. Uh, and so like, that's a, a, mm. a very difficult dialectic and like balance to hold. Cause the time where you want to go, go the most is also the time where most of the pain and most of the conflict and like the highest margin of sensitivity Ooh. is coming. You know, I, I felt it in my little bit of chunk of experience. And then when I read back, it, it, it aligns with my experience and I don't have an answer to it yet. Neither do I. I'm just now, been able to like be comfortable and like oh that's just what is going to happen like so it once we get through what's this what's going to happen in 10 years when it gets really turned up again it's going to happen again and like just be preparing people for the muscles and, and when we are back in those down times to build up the skills to be sensitive to redirect to intervene to hold yes uh because we can't build up the skills in the time where no. we're also trying to respond no. to all of this opportunity but also all of this risk and danger that comes with this opportunity externally yes and all we can control again is our response yes right. that's it so let's friggin' work on our responses. <laughs> okay? <laughs> let's just do that, please. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. And you that's know? all we're saying is we want a new system of response. <laughs> <laughs> we're not saying right. we don't want responses. We're saying we want everybody to be way more responsible. And that's the thing is that I think people don't recognize that what we're saying is we are actually not demanding only something from the state. Mm-hmm. We are demanding something of you. Thank and that's why you. people want a police to call because they don't want to have to deal with this really, really hard work. And so trying to figure out how to like, we're trying to invite people in and not like, you know, like castigate or, 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 or you know shun but to say like yo everybody needs to step up not just organizers not just movement folks not just radicals like this is a call to humanity to be responsible that's really all we're saying and we need to own our conflicts and we need to own the people who are causing harm in our communities that nobody else is coming to address that we are (laughs) we have to act as if as if that's the case while we build systems that will be able to hold those harms too. Part of the reason I'm not an anarchist is because I'm still struggling with my uh, understanding of the need for a state of some sort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not the state we have, but a different kind of state, right? And I'm always thinking those things through those ideas and reading constantly to try to develop my ideas about that. But like, I'm not just saying like everything to the people only. That's not going to be a way of self-organization that I don't think will work for every single person. It'll work for some people, but we're a big world. Also, have you met people? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, so real, so real stuff that I'm always struggling with and trying to make sense of, you know, but yes, yeah. 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 And for me, like, the, you know, the state is just... You know, there's like the lowercase level of state, which is like the state of affairs, mm-hmm. like the conditions. And so I, one thing that's been helping me is like to stop... 
using government and state as one-to-one, right? Mm -hmm. Like state is a much bigger concept and infrastructure than just government agency. Um, And usually the way we talk about state uh, lets the economy off the, 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 you know, our economic institutions off the hook. And so me thinking of state as just like the centralization or the institutionalization uh, of our political economy and human beings over the last 250,000 years have always had political economy. So mm-hmm. we may not recognize it yeah. as a militarized nation state, right? right? Like we might not want that. That's right. Um, That's but right. state In fact, is like, I would say we don't. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An imperialist, <laughs> militarized. Yeah. Like we're not, we're not on the fence about that one. No. Yeah. That was... And infused by capitalism, right? Like yeah. we want right. a different way of, 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 of being in relationship with each other. We want a different way of meeting our needs. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a part of our humanity. Like, like the difference between like primates and homo sapiens is that we organize ourselves into these states of conditions. We, we organize our environment in very unique and different ways. And like, that's what the work is. So mm-hmm. I, that was some other theory stuff that I just heard you say. <laughs> I wanted to get well, out. You know, I'll and, talk about theory uh, all day. So I'm not even going to try. You, you, you know, know, we're here. You know, <laughs> if we had all day, we would do it. Uh, yeah, we probably only got like a few more minutes left. So let's yeah. let's get to, to the closing. I just I have one thing that I think we've been trying to ask more and more people, which is and I think you're you're someone who I always look to for this. Are there any like clarifications or misunderstandings that you're seeing happening in public conversation around abolition? You know, if this is a thing that some people will hear, mm-hmm. like you want to make sure like this doesn't mean this. And we've done some of it already. Mm-hmm. But yeah, are, are, are there any kind of like. I mean, redefining or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I'm going to say the very simple thing is that PAC abolition calls for the elimination of policing, imprisonment and surveillance. Period. (laughs) Yeah. Period. Now, again, I I really feel like this has to be said over and over again because there's a real sense where people are just like, yeah, I'm a PAC abolitionist and I want this surveillance, you know, like, and I want, and, and we need, we have to imprison the killer. But R. Kelly. Right. Right. R. Kelly (laughs) has to go to jail. Like, listen to me. Okay. (laughs) Like there's just no, that's a basic obligation. If you're declaring yourself a PAC abolitionist. And you don't have to in order to do good work. You don't have to declare yourself a PIC abolitionist. You really don't. I say it all the time. (laughs) You really don't. But the principles do matter, everybody. They do matter. And um, it sounds basic, but it really is something that I'm hearing people kind of try to skirt around all the time. And it's like, but but that's the basic thing. I mean, is everything else? There are many other things. There's like, you know, we want everything to change in order to be able to, uh, you know, get to the point where we eliminate the conditions where people feel that there's a need for these things. Like all the language that we put around that is so important and has to be there. But that's a basic fact, that one sentence. And I just want people to like hold that. And if you're really uncomfortable with it, that's okay. So am I. There are times when I find myself just going, oh, my God, this horrible thing happened. (sighs) I really would. I just want this person gone. Mm. I want them away. I don't Mm. want them to live with the rest of us. Mm. What will we do with them? Let's contain them somehow. Right. Or God, the horrors of this, like is firing that person is having them lose their position is them having to pay somebody for you know is whatever is is that enough for the harms that they cause right Mm. so that's an inherent 
thing within, I think, within all of us about how we've been conditioned to believe in punishment so deeply that it's always a struggle. People are right now tweeting every day about Breonna Taylor and her death. Mm -hmm. And what are they saying? When are you going to arrest these people? When are they going to prison? People don't put the question as, when are we going to actually dismantle that police department? Right. When are we going to defund that police department where those cops were at? When are we going to stop empowering people to do that? Right. Like that's not the question on the table because the issue is like these folks did something horrible. They hurt somebody. They killed somebody. That person's no longer there again. I want something bad to happen to them. I want them. Or I just want something to happen. Right. They don't. It's not that people are saying people want people to suffer. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have to be real about that. They're not saying we want something to happen because if they did that, then they would be saying, let's fire them. Right, right. Right? They would be like, yeah. these four cops should be fired immediately. That would be the first response. It wouldn't be arrest, convict, indict. It wouldn't be that. They need to experience the torture that That's others exactly, have been. They, I'm in pain. Yeah. You have to be in pain too. Yeah. Mm. And And it comes back to something that, like, I don't think people take from you enough. And I think, you know, We've heard it in other spaces, but we've really internalized it from our conversations with you is how much all of this comes back to Western notions of individualism, Mm. right? Because they see it as these are four bad individuals, Mm. which gets back to like that bad cop conversation, as opposed to this was a collective act that was designed and created by a collective structure that we are all collectively accountable to and support. Um, So we are also accountable for Breonna Taylor's death. Um, and, And people don't want to like name that I paid for those bullets or, or that you. is that 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 gun was pulled under my name that is what that badge is is my name we're all yes. in this every single time we just go along with the fact that we have this horrific violent inherently anti-black capitalist system of policing every time we just get up in the morning and don't think about it <laughs> we just go along our days and we're just passively like, consenting right until something happens quote unquote, and then it brings our attention to it every day that we just act as if this is natural. We are complicit. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be very upset about that. They're going to be mad and they should be mad, but not at me. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're, listen, listeners, what we're asking you to do is write your like angry letter back and then just send it to the mayor of Louisville. Like we don't need to send it to Miriam. (laughs) (laughs) because people are going to be like, well, I didn't do anything. I no, this is not the point. You're missing the whole friggin' analysis. Yeah. It's that we all contribute in multiple ways. And we also contribute by having the cops in our heads and hearts. And a Mm. lot of us aren't doing the work to get them out. Mm. Right. So I just think, you know, if we take it that way, then it stops being just falling on individual quote, bad apples. Even the people who say they don't believe in individual bad apples do. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's hard yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh lovely yet again uh eddie on arsenio always the best (laughs) always the best episodes (laughs) i'm gonna have to start wearing bigger suits (laughs) Um, 
thank you for having me both both of you and i'm thank of you course so yeah i don't i don't know how else to articulate my gratitude i, I oh. feel that it has been heard but you know I, I just wanted to you know again it's beyond my vocabulary but but i am so humbled and so so eternally grateful not only for what you've done for he and i for me for our space uh before our world and for our people and for people you know i i really want you to hear and feel just how impactful you have been uh and and to live with any joy that that could possibly bring thank you so much i really appreciate it and i again always so grateful for the work you all are putting in on so many levels um, and also I have to say, Daniel, that I'm still, I want to do this short run podcast, um, for in time for black history month next year. So Let's I have this it. great idea and I want to talk to you about it. Oh. Wow. I didn't know. Now I can write off this call. That was great. <laughs> my taxes. It's fantastic. Well, I, want to, I want to talk to you about no, doing it talk. with me. Yeah. yeah like mm, producing absolutely. it for me. We can talk about how to make this happen. It's going to be so cool. Beautiful. Um, it's always there's always more pods. That's one thing I'm learning <laughs> in this time. Um, how can folks find you? Other folks you want people to find in their work in the ways you want to be found? Yeah, people can find Project Nia at Project Nia on Twitter. They can also find Project Nia on Facebook. Um, if people are looking for me, I'm at Prison Culture on Twitter, but I um, I am locked. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's ironic. My account is locked. I've locked my account for oh, several, okay. yeah for several months now. Um, so it's hard for people to be able to actually follow me on there. Um, and you, Twitter doesn't let you be able to search to see. Like I have thousands of people waiting to be uh, let in, basically, <laughs> to my account, and so I can't go and search your individual handle. To like uh, that, you know, yeah. So we need, but, we need like I'm a bouncer person. for you. I know it's like a whole thing. <laughs> I gotta have like the velvet rope situation in virtual land. But, yeah. And that's in that's in line with your politics, like a like a, <laughs> a, 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 a VIP. <laughs> Miriam, thank you so much. Thank um, you. <laughs> and, and we'll be back on the line, uh, continuing this abolition suite. And as always, showcasing the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content. No paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. Yeah. You going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <gasps> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.